This is a Centre for the History of Medicine in Ireland podcast. For details about the Centre, please go to our website at www.ucd.ie forward slash history forward slash chomi. In this episode, recorded on the 18th of September 2014, Dr. Lindsay Erner Byrne reads her paper entitled Dear Father, My Health is Broken Down. Writing Health in Irish Charity Letters from 1922 to 1940. The chair for this paper was Dr. Catherine Cox. Well, um, I think we'll try and start pretty much on time, um, as uh, everyone else had the courtesy of being on time, so should we. Um, so today it's a great pleasure to start off the seminar series with our first speaker, who's a local, um, Dr. Lindsay Byrne, and I think most of you know uh, Lindsay yourselves. Um, as you know, Lindsay has published widely in the field of gender, welfare, sexuality, and medicine, sort of broadly sort of sweeping there. Um, and her book on the mother and child, uh, mother and child welfare uh, was published in Manchester in 2007. And since then, she's published a whole collection of articles um, and pieces that I will not list, <laughs> because we will be here until 7 o'clock. Um, but today, Lindsay's going to have a new project. Um, and this paper, Dear Father, My Health Is Broken Down, Writing Health in Irish Charity Letters, 1922-1940, is from a bigger project. And I, I think perhaps it would be nice if you could introduce the bigger project mm-hmm. as well before the paper yeah. to give that context. So, thank you, Lindsay. Okay, thank you. And it's just Catherine's reference to me, to me to being local. I'm moving my room after 13 years, so I spent the day moving trolleys down corridors mm-hmm. and... Uh, contemplating what physical labour is really like because I just do it so rarely and I'm absolutely exhausted and it gives me a greater empathy with some of the people that I've been studying for the last few years. As Catherine said, it's part of a bigger project. Actually, um, I wasn't really focused on health at all. Um, I was looking more at what the first two decades of independence were like um, for those most vulnerable in Irish society. And that is, generally speaking, those without the financial means to change their future. Um, And that was really where I started. And I was particularly interested in looking at that from the perspective of those who experienced poverty rather than those who um, decided policy, um, because I had done policy. And I wanted to do the other side, which was harder. Uh, And part of the way in which I've done that is looking at various different collections of letters um, and diaries and other ways of trying to access how people experienced the first two decades of independence. Um, And this paper actually came about because of the ubiquitousness of the subject of health um, in relation to social equality and poverty. Um, And it was such an overwhelming theme in all of the sources that I looked at. I wanted to sort of focus particularly on that issue of health uh, in, in one aspect of the book that I'm doing focuses directly on health um, and people's perception of their health and how it's connected to their poverty. Um, And so the title of today's paper actually comes from one of the letters, but it's a phrase that appears in many of them, that phrase that my health is broken down, um, was was quite a common way of expressing general ill health in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, And so I thought no no better way than to... uh, than to use it uh, as a title for today's paper. Some of you will have heard bits of this um, because I outed it, particularly you, um, because I outed it um, uh, at, at a, a conference uh, a few months ago. And actually, the feedback from that was really helpful. Um, it was just a 20-minute presentation. And it's really useful to get other people's impressions from other sources, particularly, actually, from other periods. Uh, I always find the methodology that our medieval colleagues use is so much more imaginative often. 
Um, and it's really useful for those of us working in modern history to try and think about uh, our sources in a slightly different way. So that's what I've tried to do uh, today. Um, so just to, to start it off, I suppose, in, in terms of a historiographical context, um, in an analysis of the use of letters as sources for medical history particularly, Wilhelmine Ruberg observed the tendency of medical historians to mine letters for information with scant regard for letter writing as social practice and possibly as a consequence of this, a preference for focusing on doctor-patient correspondence within medical history. Um, while heeding Ruberg's words of caution regarding our methodological approach to letters as sources, what I want to do this evening is to focus on different types of letters to the one that she was advocating. She was particularly urging people to look at lay correspondence between friends or family members. Um, I'm going to focus instead on ordinary people's writing not to a physician or to each other, but to the high priest of their church seeking charity. Um, and particularly this gentleman who was in the poster um, on, in the corridor there. Um, this is Archbishop Byrne, who was the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin between 1920 and 1940. Um, and the collection of letters that I'm looking at were letters written to him and boxed in seven or, uh, large archival boxes in the Dublin Diocesan Archives labelled charity cases. He was the first archbishop to catalogue the collection, which I find quite interesting. Bishops before him received this type of correspondence, but they didn't collate it separately. And I think it says something about the man and his concern for the poor, which I think was very, very real. Um, and he was very systematic in responding to these letters in a way that other archbishops hadn't been before him. It's great for the historian as well because we have them all amassed together and we have a certain um, degree of a paper trail. It wouldn't be what we would call transparency or our best practice in the 21st century uh, sense of things, but it's very clear um, what they were doing and I'll talk a little bit about that this evening. I like this image particularly for this, um, for this project in generally because it's a really vivid visual example for you of how um, these letters actually interacted with um, the hierarchical uh, structure of the church because this was one of the devotional sort of postcards that were uh, extant uh, on the back as a prayer uh, of the archbishop and in this case one of his correspondents has actually used it to write on because you can see at the end it says my dear friend underlined I'm 83 now and I thought it was a really moving example of the ways in which these ordinary people used whatever they had at their disposal to interact with, you know, a, a very, very superior member of their church. And in this case, my dear friend, in a really personalised way, which is a real feature of the collection. It is an uncatalogued collection uh, of about 3,000 uh, letters. Uh, and it does present different challenges to the challenges that Ruberg outlined, but some similar ones as well. Um, most especially how to interpret something like comments on health and disease made by people of different age, gender, and social profile, as we find in this collection, because some of these people are categorically from the middle class uh, and finding themselves in temporary difficulty. It's not just those who are uh, generationally poor, if you like. It is also people who are becoming poor in the, particularly the late 20s and early 30s, when so many people did fall from their social perch. Um, however, this source base also presented different challenges to those that Ruberg faced when, for example, you're looking at family correspondence, because by the very nature of the relationship between the people writing to the archbishop, um, there's a power imbalance at the heart of this correspondence. Uh, the, letters aren't, uh, the letters were not just generally 
of a lower, of lower class to the archbishop, they were also of a lower status to him within the religious hierarchy of the relationship, the very relationship they're playing on. So the correspondence happens very categorically within their relationship with their church, but they're also in a very inferior position, just structurally, um, to the person they're writing to. So that has to be taken into account, I think, when we're reading how they express themselves. Also, I think, and fundamentally, all of these authors were seeking something, even if that was just to be believed. And often there isn't a material request. There's just a request to be heard. And therefore, they are in a position of supplication, um, placing them, I think, in an inherently weak position. So while they undoubtedly have agency and, and they choose to exert that in very imaginative ways, we can't delude ourselves about who has the ultimate power. Um, these Irish begging letters share many of the characteristics of Thomas Sockle's pauper letters of the late 18th and early 19th centuries. Um, they're incredibly valuable and rare testimonies, and I think the most authentic records of popular voices, because they are recorded in the words of the testifier, unlike, for example, legal records or other transcripts. And often, and certainly in this case, they're in the hand of the testifier as well. They're actually often written by the people rather than written for them by someone else, as would be the case with Sockle's collection. In fact, um, Sockle advocates, and I've tried it, and my kids think I'm mad, uh, reading these letters aloud, um, because often they're phonetically written, so you can actually hear. Um, and sometimes they don't use punctuation. In fact, often they don't. So reading aloud allows you to understand what's actually very difficult to understand if you simply try to read uh, uh, in your mind from the paper. Um, those who wrote to the Archbishop had varying degrees of literacy. Just give you uh, a sample from there, and I'll talk about that in a second. Um, some wrote in very fluid prose. Many spoke to the page, displaying traits of oral writing identified by Sokol and Martin Lyons. These traits would include phonetic spelling, ad hoc capitalization, inconsistent punctuation, few paragraphs, or other structural devices. So they use the page in a totally different way um, to how uh, educated correspondents would use it, um, but really quite amazing ways. Uh, if we um, heed Sockle's innovative scholarship and regard the rhetorical devices and strategic ploys inherent in these letters, not as distractions, so not as things to edit out, but actually as intrinsic parts of these letters, they are pivotal to them. Um, they're pivotal not just to the structure of them, but I also think to the understanding of them. And if we do this, if we look at them in whole, what they were trying to do when they do and don't use an address, how they use the page, when they punctuate, what they use to punctuate, because a lot of these people don't use full stops, they use declarations to God to punctuate. If we listen to those, we can actually hear something different that's being said and hear it on its own terms. And I think in this case, we can open up a pretty rich avenue of a to appreciate the perception and the use and centrality of illness to these writers and to their experience of poverty, or at least to the experience they wanted recorded. Um, it is the intention here to demonstrate that by appreci appreciating these letters as forms of social practice, and, and, that, and in that sense as, as artifacts, and by analysing them textually and contextually, it's possible to offer a tentative analysis of the significance and meaning of health and illness in these ordinary people's letters. Um, if you just have, have a quick look at them there, I had to try and give a selection where the only addresses I give you are those of the priests. Um, I, when I do give addresses, I wouldn't give the number or anything that will readily identify the writer. And I use a first name and just an initial, okay? Um, but you can see here at the top, and this is what I mean by them as, uh, uh, you've got to look at them in total. If you were to edit this collection and leave out the addresses, the top one there, I don't know if you can see it, it says front drawn room. Now, if you were to leave that out, you miss 
a really visual representation of poverty. Um, and, and you lose something integral, I think, to the writer and what the, what the writer wanted you to see. Because by giving that as an address, it's not just a denotation of poverty, but it's also a very visual um, placement of a person in a room, I think. Um, and so th those kind of details are really important. The other addresses included are, would be the priest referees, because part of the rule of the system was that anybody who wrote had to have a priest's reference, which is interesting from the point of view of analysis, because you've got two layers to look at then uh, from the historian's point of view. The writing there in the corner, see the one pound sign in red and in blue? And there's a date just coming on the other. That's the paper trail we have of the archbishop's decisions. So whatever decisions were made were scribbled on the left-hand corner. Uh, sometimes very, very detailed, and they go over to the other side of the page. Sometimes just a no underlined an exclamation mark or rascal, if somebody had asked more than once or twice, um, or the sum of money, um, or whether the letter was referred to the Vincent de Paul or referred somewhere else. Um, so that, that, that whole topography, if you like, I find absolutely fascinating as well. Um, upon first reading these Irish poverty letters, one is struck by the resonance of an international poverty narrative that stretches back at least to the 18th century and, and I think considerably further, in which need and character were melded together in order to plead for a hearing in a world all too often turned against the vulnerable. Despite a wide range of structural inconsistencies and differences, the majority of begging letters contained detailed information relating to particular difficulty that a family faced, the state of clothing and health of each member of the family, and the reasons for their straitened circumstances. The centrality of illness in this poverty narrative continued in Europe until at least the 1940s, and I think we could safely argue well beyond that. Um, what I want to do is explore the place of ill health in these poverty narratives uh, that the poor created rather than somebody else, but also the relationship that they constructed between ill health, religion, poverty, and medicine. The letters in the collection coincidentally coincide with the first two decades of Irish independence. Most of you know this, but I'll just go through it for those in case uh, there's anybody who doesn't. The Free State was born as a result of a treaty with Great Britain in 1922, kind of fortuitous discussing this today when Scotland is making such a massive decision in relation to their future. Um, as a state, it inherited a huge burden of wide-scale poverty, a situation that was merely exacerbated by a civil war between 22 and 23, an international depression from 1929, and an economic war with Britain between 1932 and 1938, which devastated the farming community, wiping out many small farmers, and they are heavily represented in this collection. When I read that sentence, I always think of that uh, Connolly joke, and he says to his wife, you know, you were with me there through the First World War, you were with me through the Depression, you were with me through the Second World War, you're jinxed. Um, the state had a really tough time at the beginning. Um, while Ireland inherited and maintained the old age pension, it was subject to deep cuts in 1924. The only other form of statutory relief available to those in need, and I think I have, that's just another uh, card that's so colourful and vivid, very urgent, postcard of Phoenix Park. It just gives you an example of all the sort of ways that people wrote. Um, uh, Sorry, the, the only other statutory uh, entitlement that people could avail of was a thing called home assistance, which was just outdoor re relief renamed, okay? So it was a payment given that had initially been attached to the workhouse. It was given on an ad hoc basis throughout the country, but generally subject to harsh rules of eligibility and to a maximum period of three months. So it wasn't intended to keep people who were uh, in consistent poverty. 
Until 1933, unemployment benefit was based on insurance, which excluded large sectors of Ireland's workforce, such as the agricultural workers and domestic servants. And even upon the introduction of unemployment assistance in 1933, uh, all those who could uh, prove that they couldn't get work, except women um, who had to be single and have a previous record of insurable employment, they were entitled to benefit, but that was subject to a six-month period um, and to loads of stringent tests. For example, if you had any uh, children who could work, uh, your benefit was cut accordingly and so on. Um, and one striking feature of these, of these letters is how many people simply can't survive on that benefit even when they can access it. Um, so generally speaking, um, generally speaking, people had to look to charity, either uh, as their sole support, and many did, uh, but most definitely to supplement their meagre statutory allowances um, that were available. And, you know, being poor was really hard work because you were balancing all these different things off each other and constantly trying to make sure you were obeying various different rules. And that stress, that exhaustion, comes across in these letters um, really, really uh, vividly. The Irish Free State had a population of 2.9 million. And of these, in 1931, 77,000 were in receipt of home assistance. And this figure increased to 89,000 by 1940. However, in a way, these figures are kind of meaningless because it, all it tells us is how home assistance was given out. It doesn't tell us the amount of people that actually needed it. Um, for example, if you even go and look at who was available uh, or qualified for free GP care, um, free general practitioner care through the dispensary system, about 30% of the population was eligible at any one time. And in reality, many people not considered eligible struggled to pay basic medical bills, and stories of paying the GP in kind or not at all are repeated in memoir after memoir of the period, including your mother's. Um, it's safe to argue that at least 30% of the Irish population was in a state of perpetual poverty, and another 20 were at constant risk of joining their ranks. And the letters written to the Catholic Archbishop of Dublin need to be understood in this social and political climate. It was really tough, and it was tough for an awful lot of people. Um, finally, of course, there is the particular religious profile of the collection, which was reflective of the new state in many ways, uh, in which Catholicism was the dominant religion and ideas of religious and moral character were of central importance to the notions of the deserving poor. And that goes beyond the Catholic faith. That's generally the case. In fact, the notions of deserving were you know, very, very similar. Um, furthermore, notions of suffering, health and healing were infused with religious significance in a culture in which heroic suffering was regularly promoted, and not just by clerics, but also by politicians, and where the belief in prayer played a significant role in people's relationship to health and healing. Um, and that, as I say, is a really central issue as well. Um, just to go to the first, the first letter that I want to look at. For the vast majority of writers, health was not the subject of scattered references, which is Ruberg's reference to how health appears in ordinary people's letters to each other. In this case, it's very definitely uh, a central point. It's not uh, a throwaway, and it's not uh, a side story to the letters. It is threaded throughout the letters, and it's often woven into the fabric of a more general picture that these people fostered of innocent vulnerability. Um, and health is really important in that particular uh, goal, if you like, to, to place oneself in a position where they are not to blame, um, because poor people often felt and were judged. In March 1923, a brief exchange of letters took place between a Miss Georgina G. and the Archbishop, 
which highlights, I think, the mundane centrality of health to these letters and the assumed connection between it and poverty. Georgina wrote to the Archbishop, and this is a uh, part of her letter. I, I put it up because I'm really bad at cutting and pasting these things, but even if I was to get the whole letter in, you wouldn't see it properly. But what I wanted you to see was the interaction between her and the Archbishop, between her letter and the decision that's made. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it says um, now. Her letter began, Reverend, dear Father, I send you these few verses for Easter. I'm going to ask a favour of your grace. That is, will you kindly remember my friend Thomas Kay in your prayers? He's not in good health. His sisters are in the room next to mine. They are depending on him. Neither will get the pension for many years. And if they could get it, they'd find it very hard to manage with. Uh, I find it so. Asking you to please excuse me, asking you to remember him. I am Reverend Dear Father, yours respectfully, Georgina G. Virtually unpunctuated, but well spelt. Um, there's a note on the top left-hand corner indicating the Archbishop's response, and that's the, the black writing there, which says, Thank Miss G for her verses. Send her three pounds as a little gift to buy her some breakfast. Miss G wrote again two weeks later, Most Reverend Dr Byrne, I send your grace one of my verses and must ask to be excused for my bad writing. I have rheumatism in my hands and can scarcely write at all, but I wish your grace a happy Easter. I am 78 and cannot expect to be well. I am your grace, yours respectfully, Georgina G. In many ways, it's an unremarkable exchange, which is precisely why I find it so illuminating. In a short first letter, Miss G depicted her living circumstances, a room next to these impoverished sisters, her character, she wrote with a gift and on behalf of someone else, and her struggle, she couldn't manage on the old age pension, and finally, her religious credentials, she believed in the power of prayer. Encouraged by the Archbishop's positive response, she sent more verses and zoned in on her infirmity and her stoicism. At 78, she couldn't expect to be well. Health, vulnerability and poverty merged almost seamlessly in this short correspondence. The Archbishop's response is also telling. Although unbidden, he offered Miss G money for food. Consciously or otherwise, all parties in the exchange accepted the connection between ill health, vulnerability and poverty. Even the ostensible subjects of the first letter, the sisters reliant on the ailing brother, were representations of the fate of unmarried women, condemned by Ireland's economy and culture to be reliant on male relatives for income support, an arrangement so easily and regularly toppled by ill health. The ailing Thomas Kay was to be prayed for as a breadwinner rather than a beloved sick brother. The text of Miss G's letter itself became an embodiment of her ill health and her vulnerability. Her writing was that of old rheumatic fingers that accepted their fate, but still endured the pain of writing verses and letters requesting prayer and remembrance. And this uh, tendency to physically describe the act of writing and how it is hindered by a sore finger or rheumatism or the damp or the cold or failing eyesight is um, ubiquitous to these. It's just constant. In fact, many authors made illness an inextricable component of their poverty narrative. For example, Miss Mary H's short missive was weighed down by the mundane stress of health on the normal family cycle. I'm giving you samples of the writing because the writing is beautiful in a lot of the cases. It's, and even when the spelling and the punctuation is absolutely failing, the writing isn't. Um, uh, which, in, in her case, the, the mundane, normal stuff of family life uh, is combined with unemployment. Uh, and this combination is sufficient to tip the scale of survival. And I'll quote her now, and I'll do my best to, to read it as, as I think it was written. 
I've got two little children. The oldest little girl is after being very bad with measles, but is better, thank God. And my little boy is bad, but them, but them now, um, is bad with them now. And oh, and up to I'm being expecting to be a mother soon again. I'm prevented from getting any little work myself, as I would like to do, because my husband has always been a very good man to me, and the children, only he can't get any work of any kind. Again, no punctuation at all, flowing seamlessly. God is in there almost as a sort of uh, a break in the sentence. Miss H was trapped in the web of motherhood. Her children were bad with a common but serious childhood illness, which despite uh, her spelling, she could name and did name measles. And she was, un she was pregnant and unable to work herself. Very simple, very ordinary story, but it was enough to leave them at the point of destitution. The influences and subtexts moulding these narratives were often very complex and operated on multiple levels. For example, the majority of the authors to the Archbishop were also conscious of fitting their stories into a religious framework. Um, representing, uh, representations of ill health were often immersed in a world of religious loyalty and forbearance, and a belief that if the doctor failed, prayer and miracles might prevail. Mary F's letter is a classic and succinct example of a letter written to accommodate these central realities. Just give you a sample of hers again, lovely writing. Uh, I have five children, I'm expecting another baby, about the 10th, the 2nd, 38. My husband is in bad health and I'm in receipt of 17 and 6 per week, unable bodied relief, out of which I pay four rent, three and two for coal, one for burial insurance. I have no clothes for my coming baby and very little for the ones I have already. I beg of you to help me, as I would not dream of writing to you, only I am desperate. I'm a good Catholic, as is my husband, and two of my children are attending William Street School for boys. I receive Holy Communion once a week, and my husband belongs to the Sodality in Gardner. Gardner Street, sorry. For many writers, references to prayer and faith were almost part of the structure of their narrative, while for others, the power of religion to administer to health was central to their letter. The importance of the connection between faith and healing was so strong in Ireland that Greta Jones has argued that well into the 20th century, there was a kind of fusion of religious experience and tuberculosis, for example. Looking at another expert in the room. Um, in her memoir of growing up in inner city Dublin in the 1930s, Phil O'Keefe, whose wife and, and son are here today, um, recalled, and I quote her, like all Dublin people, my mother was also a great believer in the power of St. Blaise. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly to cure sore throats. Um, St. Blaise was famed for healing a child whose throat had been pierced by a fishbone. And O'Keefe described how every Dublin family, north and south of the Liffey, made its way to the church for the blessing of throats. For our part, we would walk the two miles there and the two miles back home again. The role of saints and priests who, as O'Keefe says, had the cure, is interwoven in her telling of health and well-being in 1930s Dublin. They are embraced while the dispensary, the hospital, and most especially the hospital almoner, who assessed patients' ability to pay, were to be avoided unless absolutely necessary. And she characterized that really vividly in her memoir, but it appears in, in many of them. In, 19, in 1923, um, an Adelaide C wrote requesting the price of a pilgrimage to Lourdes in France in the hope of having her son cured. I take the great liberty of appealing to your lordship on behalf of my delicate son, who is suffering from the after effects of meningitis and is slightly lame, and he has always had a great devotion to Our Lady of Lords and believes he would be cured at the grotto. My lord, I now most respectfully apply to your lordship in your great goodness and charity to help my poor boy to go on the pilgrimage to Lords. Mrs. C's parish priest agreed that she was good and poor, and that the boy was so ill he could only be cured by a miracle. 
Miracles had considerably, considerable currency in early 20th century Ireland, and Lourdes had a particularly strong cultural resonance with national pilgrimages beginning there in the 19th century. And Miss C got a really considerable sum of 13 pounds to assist her to go on that pilgrimage. The average recipient was getting under a pound, so it was really a significant investment in, in the belief of miracles in this case. The melding of religious loyalty with the stark realities of ill health and the stress wrought by poverty can be viewed as an attempt by some authors to protest while remaining within the secure embrace of conformity. And I'll give you an example. Um, Mrs. Kate M. And again, just to give you an idea of her writing, and I, I'll tell you what I've zoned in on there. Um, there is a method to my madness. Um, Miss Kate, writing from Cork, embedded her family's woes amid a recounting of all that they'd given to Catholicism, yet still concluding with the wish for the Archbishop at least to enjoy, and I can't help wondering if she was smirking, a long, happy life. In her letter, she writes, I've only one boy at present earning for over a year now. Three are idle, and I've three going to school, and two gone away. I never hear from. And two delicate girls, and here's the bit I zoned in in the letter, one have goiter, and a leaking valve of heart, another bloodless. I'm a wreck, so delicate myself. I had a boy in, in the wireless, he's idle, he got a delicate arm, um, and it's so bad as it got broken and set wrong. I had an uncle, an archdeacon, RIP, archdeacon, PP, VG, Mitchellstown, and three uncles besides who were priests, all dead and gone. May your Lord enjoy a long, happy life here and eternal bliss hereafter. Think kindly on one of Almighty's God's destitute, deserving poor. And may your Lordship's award be great. I know that the poverty is dreadful in Dublin. I saw better days. It's hard, cruel world for some. Better times may come soon, please God. In Kate M's telling, each member of her family was identified by the status of their ill health. She's not as adroit as others at naming the diseases, but you get a fairly good idea of what she's talking about. Um, bloodless is probably anemia, for example, and you get and goiter. You get a sense of 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 uh, it's probably gout. You get a sense of what she's talking about. The illness named and itemised in each case, it's almost offered as a sort of uh, a list of suffering uh, that helps to make her case of poverty hopefully stand out in a city of such want and in a world that's so cruel. But she makes it quite clear that the only person who can really discern who the deserving poor is is God Himself. While religion provided a vital rhetorical device for most of these authors, many, I think, also sought to say something else about health and its role in their lives of poverty. Women, for example, repeatedly invoked their dependence and vulnerability and the devastating consequences of ill health on their position. In 1924, um, Bridget D. illustrated the ways in which this relationship was stressed even in the sparsest of appeals. I'm a poor Catholic and a sufferer from a sore leg and has one child and has no support and would like to get some help as I am unable to work. I would like in your kindness you could send me a little help and may God reward you and I will pray for you always. And that's essentially the whole letter. In so many of these cases, ill health was depicted as the rope that tethered these women, either to the home as patient or carer, or to poverty as the dependent of an ailing relative. Delicate health, to use a common euphemism, was also regularly depicted as the result of the strain of the role these women played as chief carer and worrier. In Mrs. Ellen B. wrote what could be described as a standard semi-literate appeal in which her delicate health was the implied toll of poverty's stress. To the Reverend Bishop Byrne, could you give me some little help as I'm in a very bad state, as my husband is out of employment? 
I have six small children in a state of starvation, as my husband is getting no unemployment money. And for the love of God, could you do anything for me, as I am in a delicate state of health myself? Your humble servant, Ellen. What Ellen B. implied, Mary D. enunciated, writing as a poor, desolate widow, and that's how she described herself, in 1925 from Summerhill in Dublin. After losing her business, followed by her beloved husband from double pneumonia and her dear son in action in this last war, she was left impoverished and in very bad health. And I quote her, For my heart is affected by all that I have gone through. I had to leave, parting with every little treasure I possessed to keep body and soul together. She'd returned to Dublin from York in search of work. But after a fortnight of futile searching, she, and I quote her, took with a terrible nervous breakdown. While Mary D. linked her physical and mental health together in her letter, what she was stressing was that grief and poverty had broken her down, further compounding her situation of vulnerability and heightening her need while confirming her innocence. When the poor created the sources, sickness was cast as central to the experience of poverty. Poor health was both a cause and consequence of poverty. And the letters of the poor evince not just an understanding of that complex connection, but an, ins an insistence upon it. This understanding, while particularly prominent and articulate, and articulate in these Irish letters, isn't unique to them. There is evidence of a strong and long European history of the impoverished insisting upon the relationship between ill health and premature death and poverty since at least the 18th century. In her study of the German unemployed during the same period, Tamara statzek vent no idea if I'm doing her justice there, was obser has observed that the poor had a keen appreciation of the negotiating value of sickness. As unemployment was the main identifiable factor in poverty, and there was no widespread social acceptance that the state had a responsibility to provide jobs, these writers invariably had to justify their idleness. And that's the phrase that they used. There's little doubt that by crafting appeals that linked illness and unemployment, these writers consciously or otherwise strengthened their claims on the moral framework of their community. For these authors, their moral innocence was a central motif to their stories, and sickness did serve that end. However, while this narrative explanation of either ill health and poverty and our unemployment by the poor must in part be viewed as an attempt to explain unemployment, legitimise need, or validate their moral character, this doesn't undermine its veracity. It was quite simply true that ill health caused poverty and that poverty caused ill health. Disentangling which came first and why or how they bled into each other was not the purpose of these letters. In fact, this very incoherence was a point in itself. For example, in the 1930s, a Mr. C.R. wrote a short letter from a hostel for homeless men in Dublin, encapsulating the vicious and complex health unemployment poverty cycle. He was writing for help to retrieve his clothes from the pawn so he could enter a sanatorium to be treated for tuberculosis which had caused his poverty, which had led to his pawning, which had led to his request. The very rhythm of his letter underscored the relentless downward spiral he was trapped in. Dear father, my health has broken down. I'm suffering from tuberculosis of the lung and have not been able to work for some time past. Dear father, owing to my ill health and not being able to work, I had to pawn my clothes and boots for food. I ask you, dear father, if in the name of God you can give me any help to redeem them as I'm going away to the sanatorium and, dear father, I cannot go away unless I redeem them. CR began his short letter with a clear chronology of decline. His ill health had caused his unemployment. However, he quickly merged the two factors, owing to my ill health and not being able to work. For him and for many others like him, whether ill health preceded or succeeded unemployment, 
they quickly became intimately connected. And this lethal combination risked sabotaging CR's chances of recovery. Tuberculosis was epidemic in Ireland during this period, and treatment in a sanatorium offered one of the few chances of recovery. He asked for two pounds and ten to redeem his clothing, and concluded his letter hoping that God would leave the Archbishop his health and strength. Men also attempted to create a subplot to the story of their failure as breadwinners. Many men constructed a narrative where their multiple role as father, husband and breadwinner were brought into conflict when ill health entered the dynamic. In 1930, H.W., a father of seven young children under 10, was a cabinet maker and had been making his own furniture for nine years and selling it to Dublin shops. However, his wife had died of cancer and during her eight-month illness, he was compelled to break in on, and I'm quoting him, his little capital that he had for working purposes. Although he had several orders for his furniture, he was unable to start for want of capital. In his telling, his dead wife was reduced to the cause of his incapacity to provide for his children. Mr W did not include the emotional impact of her loss, or how he was managing to mind seven young children alone. Instead, he used his narrative to explain the simple reasons for his need. His wife had had cancer, and nursing her had been expensive, precisely because she was the wife of a skilled cabinet maker with capital. Thus, she had not been entitled to die for free. His parish, sorry, his parish priest believed no detailed reference was required in support of Mr H's case, and he simply wrote, the enclosed speaks for itself. The word cancer tended to silence doubts. Mr Walsh received, or Mr W, received a generous contribution of five pounds from the Archbishop. Within this story of frustrated fatherhood, some men made the connection between their unemployment and ill health of their family implicit. Like Joseph H, a 30-year-old father of six, who explained, my wife has fallen into bad health, which can be verified by Dr Fleming, Rotunda Hospital Dublin, and my six children are in deplorable state for boots, clothing and proper nourishment, which can be verified by Mrs O'Byrne, schoolmistress, Christ of King's School, Cabra. I was employed for a period of two and a half years at Summerfields. I'm now walking the streets for 18 months. He concluded somewhat ominously, my body has suffered untold hardships, which has weakened my Christian soul implying that ill health caused by the injustices of poverty and unemployment jeopardised his faith. Joseph Hayes invoked, invoked an army of official witnesses. The doctor, the schoolmistress, were all there to testify to his family's poor state of health and, by doing so, would implicitly endorse his character. Whereas Hugh G insisted that the cause of his wife's health was his failure as a breadwinner, and this is very common as well, my missus has fell into bad health and unable to be about through lack of nourishment, which two doctors here will certify, all through myself being unable to obtain constant employment. Similar to the narratives emanating from German unemployed men during this period, Hugh G was more focused on how he had caused his wife's illness than his wife's illness itself. The focus of his appeal was less on the illness and more on its causes and costs. While he provided a detailed explanation of his budget and the claims upon it, it was his wife's illness that provided the emotional lever of his appeal. It started his letter, it punctuated in the middle, Sir, I had even to come so low as to have to pawn my clothes to take my missus home from hospital, which leaves me unfit as a Christian to attend Mass. And it provided his postscript, P.S. Sir, my, my, miss my missus has been ordered to the country for a change of air, but I can't raise the money to send her. He was effectively outlining how sickness compromised dignity, the integrity of the family, and even the very essence of masculinity and femininity. His unemployment had forced him to pawn his clothes in order to do his duty by his wife.
but he was still unable to provide her with the means of her recovery, which he believed were adequate nutrition and fresh air. The tone of his letter was not one of acceptance, but one of resentment and resistance. This letter brings me, you'll be happy to know, to my final consideration in the paper, which is the relationship between the construction of ill health, poverty and medicine. While diverse research on ordinary people's letters in Europe from the 18th century to the early 20th centuries has found that writers tended to be vague about their health, with few authors supplying precise nosologies of disease, as we can see with most of the letters cited thus far this evening, that's not the case in the Irish letters. They were not behind in naming their illnesses. Rheumatism, cancer, measles, goiter, meningitis, tuberculosis, heart disease, bloodless, bronchitis, double pneumonia, septic finger, nervous breakdown, many, many more were named, including want of nourishment and various physical injuries. This naming of disease is indicative of an appreciation by the authors of the power of language and their ability to appropriate it, even when the correct spelling might elude them. It also reveals, I think, the influence of medical discourse and sources on the knowledge and linguistic repertoire of these ordinary writers. These Irish writers used terminologies of illness to defend themselves from accusations of untruthfulness. By giving their illness a medical name, they brought the voice of authority into their story of poverty and often invoked other witnesses. For example, KB assured the Archbishop, I have also a doctor's certificate of my health of chronic bronchitis and other complaints. Also, clerical reference if required. In so doing, they appropriated the discourse that usually excluded them, one that was all too often controlled by professionals and people of a superior class. These Irish writers not only named diseases, they also expanded certain medical theories. For example, that dampness caused rheumatism, that fresh air and sanatorium treatment was required to cure TB, and that malnutrition caused illness and premature death. And these weren't scattered references, they were consistent medical references found implicitly and explicitly throughout the collection. In August 1933, Miss, Mrs. M.B. offered an oblique criticism of poverty's ravages on the body. I have a little girl to try and keep and a few shillings. I'm earning at housework. I am, a pe I am at present suffering from septic fingers and feeling ill for want of nourishment. I had to go into debt to bury my husband. Whereas William M.'s letter was driven by the conviction that his family was failing in health due to a lack of proper food. I'm burdened with a good wife and four young children who are certainly falling into bad health for want of nourishment, as I have been out of employment for two years. As we've seen, he wasn't alone in diagnosing malnutrition as a cause of general ill health, which is interesting as international research into the newer knowledge of nutrition was only really beginning in earnest in the 1910s and 20s, when it became a major source of concern, particularly around expectant mothers and, and their nutritional health. The Irish medical community was uh, increasingly focusing on the issue of nutrition and people like William Ferrin, who had written a book in 1936 called Nutri Nutritional Factors in Disease, were also very active in the charity circles. Um, and you can see them, it's really interesting to look at their publications and where they're appearing. So they're writing on nutrition in places like studies and the Irish ecclesiastical record, uh, very much fitting it into a narrative of social justice. Um, and, and, you know, there's quite a cohort of them. And it goes beyond denominations. It's not just Catholic doctors that are active in, in charity circles either. Um, and I, so basically, uh, what I'm arguing is that there was definitely a conversation going on about the impact of nutrition on health and, and poverty. And the poor were, if not, they were privy to it, if not actually involved in it. Um, Charles Cameron, who was the chief medical officer in Dublin between 1874 and 1921, was a strong advocate of the role of nutrition 
uh, on people's lives and constantly harking on the fact that the tyranny of the teapot um, was actually you know, killing people's health. Um, so the poor were probably being told by their doctors that poor nutrition was causing their ill health, but they were also undoubtedly observing the impact of their diet for themselves. Hence, they often specified the inadequate food their children had access to. For example, in 1938, Miss Penny C. informed the Archbishop, my children got one meal, and that consisted of bread and tea, and a baby of one year got a bottle of tea. Which means she knew that wasn't adequate. She knew that that alone was a statement. Um, and I am wrapping up. In 1939, Kathleen H., a very poor widow, she described herself from Dublin, with six children aged 14 years to two years, believed that the want of nutrition, and that's her phrase, uh, sorry, the want of nourishment, had begun a spiral of ill health that killed her son. Last year was the worst year for me. I got a cold which turned to pleurisy. I was in hospital for six months. While in hospital, my youngest child, aged five and ten months, got a cold and died, as he had no nourishment. It was for the want of nourishment that put me in hospital and killed my son. She offered the name of the illness with which she was hospitalised as evidence of the veracity of her claims. This was a concrete diagnosis. Whereas her belief regarding malnourishment was more difficult to substantiate. It is, however, likely that she was told in the hospital that she'd been left more vulnerable to pleurisy due to her weakened state of health caused by her poor nourishment. There is an implicitly, or it's hard not to hear, an implicit political undertone to Kathleen H's letter as well. The legacy of the Great Famine had a huge political and cultural resonance in Ireland as the fault of a negligent British regime. In the early years of Irish independence, the new Irish state was sensitive to any accusations that famine might be possible under their watch. Mrs H was not merely claiming that her child died due to starvation. She was arguing that he was killed and not by an alien administration. And she used that word twice. I'd like to, and I hope I can do it quickly and do it justice, I want to conclude bringing all of the points that I have flung at you for the last 40 minutes in one correspondence, one author who wrote um, in 1933, three, uh, two, sorry. Uh, her name is Mary W and she's from Wexford. Um, she wrote only four letters, but they collectively filled 43 pages. Uh, Mrs W wrote and seemed to have understood her family saga as one constantly propelled and frustrated by health or the lack of it. While her handwriting was good and her spelling better than many, her style was oral and her letters wrapped around themselves in ever-decreasing circles of the same essential story of how ill health had devastated her life. Read chronologically, her letters don't, don't offer the reader a uh, linear narrative. It's necessary to reread them in order to deduce the actual sequence of her life. But for her, it was constantly punctuated by illness. As she observed, but your grace, it seems strange. All our time, it is an uphill task. And when we would be getting on our feet, something would come with losses of stock or deaths or illness in the family to put us back again. Her first letter began with her eldest brother's bankruptcy. Poor fella, lost his head through worry and died in an asylum. And he was a father and brother to me and us all. And after his death, we all went to America one by one. The paragraph that followed will give you an idea of the nature of her narrative style. It took me ages to piece together these 43 pages and try and make sense of them. My younger brother married 
out there in the USA to a sister of my husband's and he got a hurted arm when doing business in Dublin. He never could keep the bone in place after and impaired him for 17 years and developed bone disease, leaving a wife and two children. She came home after his death and her two girls are going to the convent school in Galway. She's getting along keeping borders. And I was very fond of Dublin. I never got any help in it when my brother died there. That was, that, that my brother died there, that was so good. And other brothers went out to USA. I contracted rheumatism in Boyer's Dublin drapery store when our boss started to build and enlarge his business place. He put us in a room out in St. Kevin's and when finished building, had to go back indoors again and sleep in a new building, damp rooms and no fires. And out of this, I developed rheumatism from Sir Alfred Smith, Marion Square, advised me to go to a hot climate and I got great health there. The sheer detail presses one to believe. Could anyone make it up? 46 pages, this type, constant, 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 constantly punctuated with ill health. She was careful to keep religious fidelity constantly present in her telling. Her nieces go to a convent school to name the diseases and explain the causes. In her brother-in-law's case, it was a badly set fracture which developed into bone disease. In her case, it was rheumatism contracted in Dublin when she was forced to sleep in damp accommodation by an employer. She name-checked a prominent Dublin physician who advised her to seek life in a better climate. The next paragraph of her life was equally unrelenting. The man I married, he was in Boyers at the dress to fit. He had a sister and aunt in America and two more sisters, two nuns in San, in San Antonio, Texas. They died of pneumonia, young and professed some years. And he was a Galway man and I was engaged to him before he emigrated and went out before me. He was very sober and good, though very religious. And he was a member of the third order of St. Francis in Church Street. And I, my sister, were also. Poor Father Nicholas is dead since. And my late husband contracted pneumonia, recovered and left, was left with kidney weakness, Bright's disease, and was only five years married when God called him at 32 years old, leaving one girl four years old, one boy two years old, and a little boy unborn for five months after his death. The rest of her story took the Archbishop through a return home to her family farm in Ireland and various illnesses. On the following pages, pneumonia appeared, as did death by heartbreak, diabetes, a collapsed lung, a displaced heart, water on the chest, a disease called hydropneumothorax, which she spelled correctly, the flu, lung emphysema, septic poison, pulmonary tumour, amputation of the right thumb, caught in a turnip slicer, sciatica, double mitral valve disease, mitral stenosis, varicose veins, urine full up with uh, uric acid, in other words, gout, and so on. And full gamut of medical diseases. For Mary W, medical terminology was to be embraced. It made sense of the physical destruction wrought by poverty, hard work and bad luck. She reduced her rheumatism to a pet name, my rue, she referred to it repeatedly throughout her letters. And she used her stories and peppered her, her stories constantly with references to priests, confessions and her ill health. Of her son, she wrote several times, this boy had a wonderful belief in a little flower though there was no hope for him when the heart was displaced. All the time he said he was going to be cured by the little flower, the Blessed Virgin. He said he saw her one evening standing at the bed and we could hear the grandest singing in the room at times. He was cured and the doctor said it was a miraculous cure because he once saw two cases of its kind in a Dublin hospital and never knew the air to be absorbed by medicine without lung emphysema or septic poisoning. In this telling, even medical science, as represented by the doctor, had to concede that the power of her family's faith had cured her son of an incurable disease. She made the doctor a witness to her familial piety. In Mary W's telling, we get a sense of N. Day Dewson's 
bedside medicine, a medical cosmology in which all aspects of emotional and spiritual life were deemed relevant to the understanding of the functions and constitution. In her universe, doctor and patient shared a spiritual belief that medicine and miracles could work together, or indeed the latter could supersede the former. Her mother, she wrote, had only lived for 30 years with diabetes because of prayer. I'm going to skip a bit there. Um, when her letter was met with a request for a priest's reference to verify her case, her narrative became more pointed and politicised. Your acknowledgement to my request received on Tuesday. It's not a nice thing for a Catholic to give their oath as regards to a true, genuine statement, except in court. I have heart trouble from rheumatism, and on that account, God could call me at any moment. I was well brought up Catholic, would not dream of looking for money on help, for help under false pretenses. I did not go near my parish priest or curate, and I never went to them in any trouble, only for sick calls. My sister, here on this small holding of 13 Irish acres, always paid the clergy their lawful dues. There was always an un, also an undercurrent of threat in this letter that was absent in others. Now she was a mother who was sick with hungry children, and the times were so hard that she was tempted. While Mary W.'s letters list remedies ordered by the doctors, woolen blankets, nourishment, radio malt, cod liver oil, tabloids, her poverty makes nothing of it all. As she writes, I'm not about to buy any medicine for rue or heart, trusting in the mercy of God to spare my orphans. I can't pay for medicine. She also began to threaten that her duty as a mother, which she implied uh, that her duty as a mother trumped her responsibilities to her faith. I know our religion doesn't call to go into debt. I would be under a bigger crime if I let them die without a doctor or nourishment. She signed off with her faith and pain. I suppose it is hard, a terrible thing to be poor. Could you please help me in God's name to meet the doctor's bills and other expenses the little orphans incurred? All I can do is to have them pray for you morning and night hereafter. My trouble and sickness are great. Please ex excuse, scribble, pain is bad. Um, sorry, and I have that there. You can see it's very, very blurred. It's all smudged and her letters actually begin to display the deterioration in them. You can see the writing begins to deteriorate um, and it's a really sort of graphic, uh, uh, I think, physical uh, manifestation of how desperate she's becoming. Mary W's letter was her proxy. Her physical pain was etched on the page. Her emotional trauma provided the narrative's pitch, at times shrill, often chaotic, but always insistent. Her letters helped her to perform, through constant retelling, even within the one letter, her family saga of banal tragedy of ill health caused by a hard life of poverty. In many ways, these Irish letters represent the missing voice of the majority of those living with pain, illness, sickness or debility. Ordinary people are, as Porter called them, articulate sufferers, surviving most of the time outside the medical gaze. In his overview of the history of the patient, Flor Florin Condra contended that there were two opposing views in the discipline. One, that the patient was a construct of the med medical gaze, and two, that the patient's view can be unearthed from various sources. I'd argue that these are not two opposing sides. The patient can be interpreted both as a medical construct and as an active agent that continues to define and redefine their patient status beyond the purview of the hospital or the doctor's rooms. By considering sources traditionally outside the medical arena, we're presented with a more complex and dynamic understanding of the notion of a patient. Outside the medical gaze, these ordinary writers perceived and gained leverage from reconstructing either themselves or their children or loved ones as patients. Not only that, they raise interesting questions about the process of medicalization. 
These writers often appropriated medical rhetoric, names and theories to underscore their telling of poverty's ways and woes, while insisting upon their character, virtue and innocence. From the semi-literate to the fully versed, these letters offer countless examples of what J.C. Scott referred to as cautious resistance and calculated conformity. In many individual and personal ways, letter writer after letter writer insisted on having their version of poverty recorded, and in their narrative, health became politicised. While Porter noted that a people's history of suffering might restore to the history of medicine its human face, it does depend on what direction that face is turned, or on what Condra referred to as the arena in which we find that patient. Inevitably, the experience of health, pain and suffering was constructed in different ways to different audiences, even when the narrator was the patient. As Condra warned, we need to define arenas of patients and to understand that the sum of those arenas may not reveal the real patient, precisely because the patient is not a stable or one-dimensional construct. Thank you.